Hi, and welcome to FIA's Market Voice Podcast. I'm FIA's President and CEO, Walt Lucan. This podcast and the two that accompany it features interviews with members of the 2023 class of the FIA Hall of Fame. FIA established the Hall of Fame in 2005 to commemorate our 50th anniversary. Inductees come from both the private and public sectors and include men and women who have contributed their time, talent, and passion to building the clear derivatives industry and supporting its members. In this podcast, we'll feature the following three individuals. Thomas Cashman was a dominant force on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade for more than five decades and influenced an entire generation of traders and leaders in our industry. John Davidson was a pioneer in risk management for clearinghouses and financial firms for over three decades. He helped lead CME through the 1987 market crash and was instrumental in the development of its span margin model. And Gary DeWall is a legal trailblazer and creative thinker who helped the industry and regulators think through emerging issues like crypto assets and blockchain. Thomas Cashman is a retired independent floor broker and trader on the Chicago Board of Trade and part of a prominent family that had several members working in the city's commodity trading markets. For more than five decades, he filled orders in CBOT's soybean futures pit. Cashman served on numerous exchange governance committees, including the Floor Governors Committee, the CBOT Nominating Committee, and the CBOT Ethics and Integrity Committee. He also served on the board of directors in the early 1980s, during a period of significant change and growth for the exchange. The son of a Chicago fireman, Cashman has also been a longtime advocate for first responders through his charitable work. My uncles were the ones that bought my membership, and they were the ones that schooled me on being a, a pit trader and a scalper. I, I was in graduate school and I used to come down on Mondays when a day I didn't have class and I would try to scalp wheat. And that's uh, how I started as a, as a trader. The most important lesson that I've learned is the market is always right. The settlement price at the end of the day determines the value. You can say that beans closed at $12 but they're worth $14. Well the clearing corp says they're worth $12 and that's what they're worth. The other lesson is be careful when everybody's the same way. Don't overtrade. If you have a position on that either you can't afford or is a, starts to lose money, you don't have the money to cover it, then you shouldn't be trading that position. And the other, the other thing is you, you in, end up having uh, conversations with people in the business, commercial firms, and you see charts, you see there's, there's all kinds of statistics that'll tell you the percentage of people that are long or short and whether markets are overbought or oversold. Unfortunately, this doesn't always uh, bear fruit because lately when a market's overbought it makes its biggest rally and when a market's oversold it's having its biggest break. So the technicals aren't, aren't, certainly aren't foolproof but they can be used as a guide. The best year I had trading was the 1983 market when we had a very surprised stocks number in June and the market closed up the limit that day and it went from uh, 6.99 all the way to nine and a quarter and I was lucky enough that I was stuck long that day because I was stuck on an error and I stayed long all the way up and I got out. It went under $9, back over $9, under $9, back over $9 and I got short and the market went all the way back to $7.50. And it was a very orderly market and it's never happened before or since but it was the only market I guess where I really didn't make a serious mistake and I took advantage of both sides of the market. The worst year was uh, 1980, the Reagan got elected and there was a tremendous amount of euphoria in the whole country. Everything was strong and at, at that time beans were going through a period of uh, big cash movement and big demand and consumption. 
And the Barons came out with the article, Beans in the Teens. Well, Beans got to about 9.50 that year and everybody was long and they just absolutely collapsed. And I had a huge position in the market and it, uh, it cost me a lot of money. What was it like in the 1970s when the Russians bought U.S. grain and soybeans? I was one of the three brokers that had the orders to buy beans that day. And Cook Grain gave me an order and they said, uh, take, take the market up a nickel and buy all the beans you can. And if this was unheard of, that you didn't have a, a, a number of contracts to buy, a number of bushels to buy. So I bought a couple of million beans. I went over the phone. I said, I bought two million beans. Is this all right? He said, take it up another nickel and buy all the beans you can. Well, it ended up the market was up about 15 or 16 cents. They bought 28 million beans that day. But believe it or not, the market broke the next two weeks. Even on all that Russian news, it broke back about 15 or 20 cents. Then it took off all the way to $12.90. How much of an advantage was the information received being a pit trader? It was something you would use as a guide more than anything else. You know, if there was a rumor about wheat going to Russia and Continental was buying wheat on every break, you'd say, well, there must be something to it because Continental's an exporter. If you were starting over today, what would you change? Well, I think I would take more advantage of all the different uh, opportunities as far as technicals are concerned, as far as options are concerned, as far as option spreads, things that I've never been, uh, been involved with. There's an awful lot of uh, ways to, to access our markets. John Davidson has served as Chief Executive Officer of OCC, the world's largest equity derivatives clearing organization, since 2019. Prior to joining OCC, he served as Chief Compliance Officer at Citigroup, where he led the 2,400-person, 87-country compliance organization. Prior to Citi, Davidson was Chief Corporate Development Officer at CME Group and Managing Director for Morgan Stanley's Institutional Operations Division. Early in his career, he was head of the CME Clearinghouse, successfully guiding it through the 1987 stock market crash and leading initiatives to enhance its financial safeguards. He began his career in the futures industry in 1980 with Merrill Lynch Commodities at the Chicago Board of Trade. I want to welcome John Davidson to the FIA Hall of Fame and congratulate John on being recognized by his industry peers with this honor. Congratulations, John, on uh, this wonderful event. Well, Walt, thank you very much. Nice to see you again. I really appreciate being honored in this way by people in the industry that I've worked in for many, many years. Well, John, I want to start at the beginning of your career. Um, many people know the 30 years you've been uh, in our industry, but let's start at the beginning. And uh, how did you get a start in our industry? And who were some notable role models that helped you along the way? I was uh, a graduate student in political science at the University of Chicago. And uh, in September 1980, I just returned from a year studying Chinese language in Taiwan. And I was getting married in November. I uh, needed a job. A friend of my uh, soon-to-be wife said, well, downtown, there's this street called LaSalle Street. At the end of it, there's this really tall building. Uh, you go there, called the Chicago Board of Trade. You go there, you knock on doors. If you get to the 42nd floor and you still don't have a job, you screwed up. Happily, on the third floor, I found uh, Merrill Lynch Commodities and uh, a young woman manager there by the name of Barbara Tuberty was willing to hire this strange guy with no business background uh, to do account number uh, corrections, account corrections, and also uh, transcribe executed floor orders 
uh, for key punch operators to uh, transform them into the input for uh, clearing system and balancing. So that's how I started really uh, pretty much at the bottom rung of the business many, many years ago. And were there any uh, role models along the way that may have caught your attention that helped you? Um, I know at Merrill, um, eventually at CME, but who, who were some of the notable people that you really learned your your uh, your craft under? You know, a host of people. One doesn't get to this uh, into this business without uh, a lot of help from uh, colleagues and friends and role models and mentors. Uh, certainly at the beginning in uh, the futures industry, Leo Malamed was always a role model as someone who was willing to uh, try new things and uh, explore areas that hadn't been previously explored. Uh, the late Barry Lind, uh, who ran one of uh, the, the best of the retail uh, futures firms in the day, Lind Waldock. Barry was uh, a great risk manager, really understood the importance of uh, integrity and, and taking care of the customers. Uh, also, you know, longtime chair of the Clearinghouse Committee back when uh, the CME was a, a, a mutual exchange. And then later, uh, as I moved uh, to New York and onto Wall Street, uh, certainly Vikram Pandit, uh, Morgan Stanley, John Havens, and Brian Leach uh, all were uh, people that were very influential in you know, teaching me the ropes in the securities business as well as the futures business and uh, teaching me to be a better risk manager, better business person generally. So. I'd say those five people were the most uh, influential in my career and uh, continue to keep in touch with all of them, except, of course, uh, Mr. Lind, who's passed away, I'm sorry to say. And you mentioned a bit of your career arc um, throughout, with starting with Merrill, uh, CME, Citigroup, you know, and, and your current role uh, at OCC. But tell us, uh, you know, as you look back, uh, what are some of the notable achievements that you're most proud of uh, throughout your career? Well, as I mentioned, I think uh, the thing I'm most proud of are the people that worked for me and the people that worked with me that have gone on to very important roles in the industry subsequent to our working together. And that to me, more than a particular transaction or something like that, is really the legacy that one, one leaves. Uh, certainly the next four heads of CME Clearing uh, all worked for me at one time or another while I was at CME. Uh, Kate Meyer, Hoopender Gill, Kim Taylor, uh, Sunil. Uh, number of chief risk officers after my work at uh, uh, Morgan Stanley and City, uh, chief risk officers now at uh, Bank of New York Mellon State Street, a um, whole bunch of uh, chief compliance officers at various firms around the street, uh, Mitsubishi, uh, UFG, uh, Royal Bank of Canada, Deutsche Bank, MetLife, BNY Mellon, and even uh, CFTC Commissioner Carolyn Pham, uh, we worked together at uh, City for a number of years. And, and those kinds of relationships and seeing people, you know, 
I'm sure some of them went screaming into the night saying, God, I got to get away from this guy. But uh, seeing their success and their uh, contributions to the industry overall, that certainly has been uh, very, very rewarding for me and in terms of a legacy. If you want to look at a specific transaction, um, I have here the lava lamp lucite from the Google IPO in uh, August of 2004. And uh, I was at Morgan Stanley at the time. Uh, it was a very large and very unusual initial public offering, uh, ultimately raised uh, one and two thirds billion dollars, one of the largest IPOs up until that time. And the unique thing about it was that uh, Google, Larry Page and uh, Sergey Brin uh, and Eric Schmidt, who we went out to Mountain View to meet with, didn't want to do it in the traditional way that Wall Street worked. They're very much about, uh, and sort of echoes of uh, something we've heard recently with the uh, distributed finance industry, they wanted to democratize uh, finance and have an IPO that would really enable individual investors to get a better share of the, uh, the distribution of the securities. So instead of the traditional so-called book building method of an IPO, they wanted to do a Dutch auction. And the challenge for a syndicate and, and Morgan Stanley, uh, as well as Credit Suisse, but mainly Morgan Stanley was the lead underwriter for the Google IPO. Um, a challenge is that the syndicate in a Dutch auction doesn't have any way to control its credit risk. So the least credit worthy uh, client or broker dealer can make the bid which clears the market uh, and there's nothing that either the company or the underwriting syndicate can do about that. So John Havens, who was running the equity division at Morgan Stanley at the time, um, neither Havens nor Pendant have ever called me by my first name, actually. It's always Davidson. Davidson, how are we going to fix this problem? And thought about it, and every couple of days he called up Davidson. Have you figured this out yet? Eventually, uh, flying back uh, on, the, on the red eye from uh, Mountain View, I thought about the way IPOs are handled in Hong Kong which is the investors have to make payment in advance in order to enter uh, into the IPO. Now, they don't do Dutch auctions in Hong Kong. They're more traditional. But that was the solution, is that as long as the broker-dealers representing uh, the various investors who opened uh, bids were willing to pay in advance, we would allow them into the process and eventually the, uh, <clears throat> eventually the auction was quite successful, uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, there were a number of trials and tribulations in the press about Google just before the IPO occurred. But it was successful and Google, as you know, has gone on from strength to strength. So in terms of an accomplishment, a single accomplishment, that uh, probably took the cake, I would say. That is pretty good. I've not heard that story. That's amazing. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like, you know, as you think about your legacy, certainly the Davidson's army, as you, as you call it, all the people that you have sprung the careers of, 
um, important and, and you're proud of uh, this Google event. But I also know the the lore around the 1987 stock market crash. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, that episode and how it sort of changed your view on, on handling a crisis and handling risk. Well, when we think about that episode in the current context of much, much deeper and better understanding of uh, clearinghouses and CCP risk and the sorts of financial resources that uh, a CCP ought to have, one, one really shakes one's hand and, and, and wonders about, well, how the heck did the CME clearinghouse survive this experience? So back then, CME had a uh, what we called a clearing fund uh, or guarantee fund of all of $4.4 million. That's million with an M, not billion with a B. And we had uh, a nice set of rules that were well designed and I think uh, pretty well understood and had uh, worked effectively that among other things gave us the ability to do uh, intraday margin calls, but we'd never actually executed that. So we knew that the market was in a very uh, tenuous situation uh, starting uh, the, the late part of the week before, which I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, was also uh, a week of FIA Expo, believe it or not. Um, on December 16th, uh, the market had a, a very significant downturn. Uh, the markets in the UK were closed because there was a huge uh, windstorm that actually took out uh, a lot of the infrastructure in the UK and a whole lot of uh, ancient trees. And so we knew over the weekend, uh, and we're well before the era of electronic trading now, right? So we've got all of this volume going on in the pits. We call people in from the various clearing firms to do Saturday out trade session. Uh, that all went off reasonably well. Came into the office a uh, little before noon on Sunday because we knew uh, the markets in Asia were gonna open uh, in a few hours time in, in a very uh, tentative situation. And, and sure enough, they all opened and uh, were dramatically down. Uh, by the time Monday morning rolled around, it was pretty clear that it was going to be, it had already been a horrible day in Europe uh, in terms of the European markets and was going to be a very, very active down day in the United States. We didn't really have any intuition as to how bad it was going to be, uh, but that remains the largest single day uh, downdraft in uh, US equity markets in, in percentage terms. Um, we did, as the day went through, make two intraday uh, variation margin calls uh, in accordance with our rules. The problem, of course, is that since we hadn't done this before, all the money came in we failed to record it into the clearing system. We worked busily with the people on the floor, kept uh, all the outtrade clerks uh, late in the night, uh, came, brought them in very early Tuesday morning to continue that trade matching, uh, trade comparison process that uh, went on in the battle days. Um, 
And then as we uh, went through the night, produced the uh, pays and collects to send to the banking system and noticed that, oops, uh, we forgot the interday uh, funds that we had already received. And back then, we only brought money into the clearinghouse. We didn't send any out on an intraday basis. This, in terms of liquidity risk management, was a fairly uh, fundamental flaw in the ointment, if you will. So we had all this money that came in, um, but we were debiting all of our uh, clearing members and the associated banks that had long positions to bring that in again, plus the amount that the market had further gone down. So we quickly got the pencils out, corrected the uh, fax messages to the uh, banks. We, we didn't have uh, swift connections back in those days. We faxed the uh, clearing number obligations to the banks. And uh, eventually that process through a lot of uh, hard work by uh, the various settlement bankers. And there were only four, uh, First National Bank of Chicago, Harris Bank and Trust Company, Continental Illinois Bank and Northern Trust, uh, straightened things around. But it took a while, uh, some very concerned phone calls from very senior people at uh, Goldman Sachs looking for their uh, funds. Uh, we made a number of calls, uh, obviously Leo and Jack Sander and Bill Brodsky and et cetera were all there through the whole night, uh, getting things straightened around. We had to call the banks in New York and some of the very senior people and some of the clearing members to make sure these huge sums of cash actually moved through. And at the end of the day, they did. Uh, happily, the market did start to come back again on uh, Tuesday the 20th. Uh, I think I got to the clearinghouse at about noon on Sunday and went home about 11 o'clock on Wednesday evening. But I think the thing is, through a lot of good faith efforts uh, in the business by people that uh, understood what they were doing and uh, were, were willing to you know, work through a very significant crisis. Certainly had there been a failure, it would have been uh, a monumental issue for the U.S. economy. As it turned out, by the end of the year, there was no ripple uh, impact on the economy at all in terms of uh, causing a recession or something. There were a number of uh, regulatory and congressional investigations of the whole process um, what caused, quote unquote, the market to decline like that, the role of the clearinghouse, and a lot of very strong suggestions about how we ought to improve our financial safeguards. And I think one of the most important things that happened uh, under Bill Brodsky's leadership, and obviously with the members of uh, uh, the CME board at the time, was putting in place and, and getting CFTC approval for these very enhancements, uh, various enhancements for uh, financial integrity of CCPs. Lots has happened in the industry since then, right? Common clearing, uh, the merger of uh, CME and Board of Trade and NYMEX, the real understanding, I think, there was a very small group of people that understood the risk of clearing uh, back in 1987. There's now a much larger group 
maybe it's not as large as it needs to be. I think the voices of clearing members uh, are heard. If we think about the OCC, we certainly have uh, very strong voices on our uh, board of directors from uh, clearing member representatives who are at the end of the day, uh, mutualizing all this risk. We've come a long, long way, but I think uh, a lot of that came from the lessons that happened in 1987 and the desire, uh, the recognition by the industry that we're going to have financial crises again, uh, had financial crises since banking was invented. Um, we need to understand what the first and second order consequences are, uh, what the resources are available to meet those financial crises in this stressful, uh, the so-called extreme but, uh, but probable kinds of events. And we're all prepared because we will not know when the next one uh, comes up and, and knocks on our door. And that's one thing I love about our industry is it takes these crises and, and, and learns from them and the system gets better and it's a collective sort of muscle memory that you, you learn from it, as you noted, the, the advancements in our clear, you know clearing system and risk systems. Um, but if you just go through time, we've seen that with each crisis, you know, I mean, that that occurs. And um, so it's it's like you said, it's it's a great industry because of that fact. Absolutely. And it's because of great people that work in it and uh, very uh, strong regulators who understand the economics of what it is that they're regulating and and have a strong desire to to make it better and to make it safe for all types of investors be they uh, individuals be they uh, institutions be they uh, pension and ERISA funds well john as, as you look back over your 30 plus year career um, and you talk to people who may be just at the start of their career what advice would you give a young person entering our industry today uh, well, a couple of things. Um, first of all, be patient. Uh, you're, you're not going to have the opportunity to be the CEO in three years. Uh, world doesn't quite work that way, notwithstanding maybe some interesting examples in the cyberspace, but let's not go there. Um, I would say don't be afraid to try new things, right? I mean, what the heck does a person with... Uh, undergraduate degree and uh, the start of a graduate degree in political science know about uh, the commodities business. Well, okay, I grew up in Kansas, so I knew what wheat and corn were, uh, maybe even live cattle. Um, but you have to be willing to move into different areas. I, I was hired uh, by, uh, by Headhunter uh, to work for Victor Pandit and others at uh, Morgan Stanley in their equity derivatives area and eventually moved over into cash equities, which are completely different. You have to be able to, uh, to take some risks and to be willing to try new things. And I think also you need to be able to communicate strongly. Probably the smartest thing that I did during my high school and undergraduate education was participate in debate. You really learn how to organize your thoughts, how to express things clearly, um, and, and how to uh, bring focus to critical points and, and to disagree with people in a constructive and forward-looking manner. And so I, I think the ability to communicate 
the willingness to take uh, intelligent risk and to try new things, those are what will lead to success. Of course, a fair amount of hard work is also required um, by people entering uh, this exciting industry. Well, John, I just want to thank you for all the contributions that you provided to our, our industry, your leadership, the integrity uh, that comes with uh, your, all your achievements. Uh, we so appreciate it. And we want to thank you uh, for, for joining this exclusive Hall of Fame club. And congratulations again. Well, thank you very much. And it's uh, wonderful. It's an industry that's taken good care of me over the years. And I'm glad to have been able to make some small contributions. Gary DeWall is senior counsel at Katnmooch and Roseman and former chair of its financial markets and regulatory team. He has been a trailblazer for the firm's crypto assets and blockchain technology practice in addition to his long-standing work in traditional derivatives law. In 1982, he joined the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission's Division of Enforcement, where he was a senior trial attorney. DeWall then joined Makata Futures as a compliance officer and was quickly promoted to general counsel and eventually served as head of operations and president. The majority of his career was spent as group general counsel at FIMAT, later known as New Edge where Dual oversaw the group's legal, compliance, and anti-money laundering functions. He also served multiple terms at FIA's Law and Compliance Division's Executive Committee. Dual left New Edge in 2013 and establishing his own consulting firm before ultimately joining Catton in 2014. I want to welcome Gary Dual to the FIA Hall of Fame and congratulate Gary for being recognized by his industry peers with this incredible honor. Congratulations, Gary. Thank you so much, Walt. It's a, it is a great honor and I'm very, very humbled to have been selected. Well, I have known you for a long time and you've had an illustrious career starting in the government and with private practice and then with different firms throughout our industry. But I want to start at the beginning. So give us a sense of how you got into our industry and who were some of the major mentors that helped you along the way? Well, it was actually very fortuitous. I was a corporate and securities associate at Mudrose Guthrie and Alexander. That's Richard Nixon's old law firm. I had been spending many, many nights at a printer. Uh, I was a municipal bond underwriting at the time. I was spending many uh, nights at the printer on uh, Hudson Street. Uh, and I finally was able to have a lunch with a new guy who joined us. His name was Richard Fielding. He had been a counsel with the Commodity Exchange Inc. And we had lunch and he started telling me about futures contracts. And I was shocked. I, I had an undergraduate economics degree. I had a MBA. I had never heard of a futures contract. He told me about the Commodity Exchange, Inc. I had no idea there was another exchange by that name in New York City. I'm a, I'm a Brooklyn native. Um, and all I can tell you is that six weeks later, I was at the CFTC with the Division of Enforcement. It was just fascinating to me. I mean, I, 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 I didn't understand what he was talking about, but I knew it's what I wanted to be. Uh, a futures lawyer. What was the next job that you took on after the CFTC? After I left the CFTC, I joined a company that was then called Mokata Futures uh, Company. It was part of the Mokata Group, which was a ring dealing member of the LME. Uh, it was headed by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Henry Jarecki, um, a fascinating gentleman who once upon a time was a psychiatrist on the, on, on the faculty of Yale University. Uh, and then he founded this trading company and then had an ancillary futures broker as part of it. 
he ended up uh, launching the career of Thomas Petterfee as well. That's correct. Uh, they were just sort of breaking up. They, they were partners. Um, they had a falling out. Tom went his way. Henry went his way. And um, yeah, they both did. They both had very successful and illustrious careers. Gary, you've been associated uh, not only with several firms, but also a, a, a very much an important part of the FIA and the Law and Compliance Division. And tell me how you got involved with the FIA Law and Compliance Division and what that means to you. You know, it's funny, as part of this process, I was trying to figure out when did I first join the Law and Compliance Division? I don't know, um, to be honest with you. Uh, I think it was probably in the late 1980s. Um, it was fascinating. We were dealing with just about every novel issue, and there always seemed to be a novel issue just about every other month uh, in the futures industry. Um, uh, some kind of crisis we were dealing with. Um, and the FIA Law and Compliance helped, um, obviously, the FIA uh, formulate policy. We helped advise them. Um, and, and, and then we went back to our, our own companies with the information we got. So it was a great clearinghouse for legal developments. I, I will tell you that one of the proudest things uh, um, I, I worked on at, at Law and Compliance in its early years well, is the Uniform Giver Agreement. Uh, Barbara Bishop, uh, David Sturm, uh, Janice Abrahamson, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody else. We all decided that uniform documentation uh, would be very, very important. The industry was moving from a situation where folks cleared and, and executed to a, a bifurcated a situation where execution and clearing were separated. And it was great to be on the ground uh, floor and, and, and deal with that. As I talk to different Hall of Fame uh, candidates from this year's class, um, there's a common theme and that's all of them seem to be teachers, seem to want to educate others um, and they're good at, at in their career at uh, you know trying to spread the the gospel of our industry. I, I with you in particular, I think of you as a teacher, and I know I've I've participated in some of your classes, but long compliance is another great example of that. But tell us a little bit of why you know sort of teaching is a part of of your career. Actually, it's it's totally selfish. Um, I, I have always felt that the pipeline to our industry uh, uh, should be as expanded as possible uh, to attract persons of all backgrounds into our space. And I felt that by, by being a teacher in this space, um, you know, in law schools uh, or otherwise, um, I could, could contribute to that. So, uh, you know, initially I did some uh, work at Brooklyn Law School. Uh, Ron Filler and I co-taught a course for many years there. I then took it on alone and he went over to New York Law School. Uh, and then most recently I've been, I've been helping out every, every year with the uh, University of Buffalo Law School. Uh, they've got a, a, a program in New York City and I, and I always sponsor some students um, with internships and then give some lectures. But I've, I've enjoyed speaking to students. Um, I, I think it's great. I, I do a lot of work now in the crypto space. Uh, I make my rounds. I know I'm speaking in Fordham Law School in a couple of weeks. Um, I just think, you know, to excite students and bring them into our industry um, helps, you know, you know, widen the diversity of the group that we can choose from as potential, um, you know, professionals. And I love being a part of that. A lot of people don't think of, you know, people in the Hall of Fame of taking an interest in crypto, but you're always evolving and you're always keeping up with latest trends. Tell us what got you excited about the crypto and the technology behind it. I mean, literally, it's the exact same thing that got me excited and involved in futures. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't think I'm a dumb guy. 
Um, I have pretty widespread interest. I follow things pretty, you know, all sorts of technology. I've been following technology for a long, long time. Um, when I heard about futures, I said, wow, this is cool. I want to be part of that. And I pivoted my career at that point. It was the same thing after I joined Canon. Um, you know, I mean, how could I possibly bring more value to the industry than the guys I was working with, Kevin Foley, Arthur Hahn, Ken Rosenzweig, great, great attorneys. And I said, I got to do something different. I read the Satoshi white paper uh, and I said, wow, this is really cool. Um, even when I was an undergraduate, I, was, I took a course in computer science and I learned how to program in some languages. I continued that in business school. And when I read the Satoshi paper, I said, wow, this is computer technology. This involves, you know, I can draw my knowledge in derivatives. I can draw my knowledge in, in, in securities. Um, it all comes together and it was just very exciting. So I just said, okay, I'll do this. And, and here I am. We heard from you about why you and how you got uh, involved in the futures industry, but what, what kept you in the futures industry? I mean, what is it about our industry that uh, excites you, keeps you? Well, look in the mirror. I mean, it's guys like you. I mean, I mean, what, what industry, I, I, there may be other industries out there, but we are, you know, firms on the street are all competitors and we're really tough competitors, uh, but we understand that's our job. And socially, we all get along. Um, I think this is a remarkable space for the collegiality, the friendships, and just the you know the vibrancy of the industry. It's it's just it's just terrific. Um, and, and you know, I still remember when I first got into the industry, there was really no one. I was hired at a special uh, section of what was then the division enforcement called market integrity. The problem was there really wasn't a lot of people to tutor me in New York. Uh, so I used to go down to the floor um, every day, um, and 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 you know, much much like uh, the Scarlet Letter, if you worked for the CFTC, you had to big, wear a big red badge that said CFTC. So it was like you know, the, the 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 not 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 a friendly sight. But I remember almost from the beginning, uh, uh, it was like two or three days. I was coming down for the open every morning. George Giro uh, would come over to me. He said, I, I don't know if I should be helping you. You're, you're a CFTC guy. He said, but you look really, you look really, you know, you, know, you know, like you're interested in this field. Can I help you? And that was so typical of the industry. Folks were always willing to help you. Either they knew you were an adversary, you were a competitor, whatever. Um, just amazing, just amazing to me. You've certainly been a mentor to me. I appreciate everything you've done to help me and grow me over my career. So definitely appreciate it. Um, I did want to ask you about some of your major influences in your career. You mentioned Arthur Hahn, obviously. Um, but what are some of the, you know, maybe you want to talk about Arthur and some of the other major roles. I've been so lucky to have so many great bosses. I have to say that um, Dr. Jarecki, uh, my first boss in the private sector was just an amazing influence on me. First of all, uh, you know, he was a psychiatrist. I mean, the way he approached, you know, contract negotiations taught me a lot. Um, you know, when I when I joined uh, FEMAT, New Edge, which is where I was most of my career, um, I had some amazing bosses. Brian Kay, who actually uh, did the acquisition of the assets of, of what was then Brody White. That was the former Makata Futures. Um, he, he just very, very insightful. Um, you know, they bought this little crazy brokerage company uh, that served as sort of almost the core of, of FEMAT going forward. Um, I still remember Marc Bayou, uh, the first French chairman I had at, at, at FEMAT. Um, you know, I'll never forgive him uh, because he didn't let me learn French. 
even though I was working for a French company, because he was he was very insightful. He said, "Listen, Femed today is nothing. I want it to be a big company. Uh, if if you learn French, all my colleagues are never going to learn English. English is the international language, not French, and therefore I bar you from learning French." Um, I, I've just had so many great and crazy uh, bosses in my career. Um, Arthur Hahn, who was my outside counsel for so many years, um, I remember going into one meeting. I was at Catton's offices in Washington. We we're about to go visit the CFTC on something that you know the CFTC alleged we had done wrong, um, and, and we had prepped, and he made me you know really prepare. And then I went in and was completely off you know color. I wasn't. I didn't do anything he told me to do. Uh, and afterwards, he said, "Why did you retain me um, if?" Um, if you weren't going to follow my advice, I said, I said, Arthur, you can't underestimate what a valuable sounding board you were to me, and how you helped me, you know, formulate my my ideas, my mind, and, and present the way I did. I know we we did successfully at the time, but Arthur it was um, a, a great outside counsel, and and in house he was a great mentor uh, because I knew nothing really about being a a, a lawyer with a law firm. Uh, and he was great on that. But I also want to talk about the fact that even my subordinates, I, I was lucky to have great teams at FEMAT. I am so lucky at Catton to have, you know, uh, great teams. I'm being succeeded as chair of the Financial Markets and Regulatory Practice Group by Dan Davis and Carl Kennedy. They're just fantastic. And I can't tell you how much I've learned from the people who report to me um, in, in my career. So, you know, up and down, um, and then to run into regulators like yourself and, and, and other folks at the CFTC, at the SEC, at FinCEN, all around the world where I, I dealt with regulators constantly. It was just, I've never had, you know, I've always been learning. It's just, it's just fantastic. I've always found that everybody, the industry, the regulators, we all have a common purpose of making sure the markets work well, that they're safe, um, that they're competitive. Um, because it's and I agree that it tends to be a collegial relationship, typically, you know, always times that there's adversarial aspects of it. But um, for the most part, it's pretty collegial. It's amazing. It, it is apps. You know, I mean, the friendships that we all have, even after people have left the field, we all stay in contact with our with, with our former colleagues or our adversaries. It's just truly an amazing industry. You look back over your career. Um, what would you say? in, in you know, take this, there are oftentimes small achievements that may be the ones you're most proud of, but what would you say are, are, are the notable achievements and the ones that you're most proud of over your career? Surviving at a French company for 17 years without speaking French, that's not bad. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, I have to say that um, I've been very, very lucky um, from the beginning of time in this industry and maybe it's because I started with the enforcement division and I prosecuted cases that involved futures brokerage that, that weren't exactly you know, necessarily on the up and up. Um, I have preached the compliance culture since the beginning I started in the private sector. And, I, and my message has resonated with my bosses. And I'm really proud of that. You know, I am very, very proud that the that, that the folks I've worked with have embraced the culture. Uh, doesn't mean there haven't been problems, uh, but overall, they've done a good job. Um, you know, and, and I think that's terrific. And even now, as an outside counsel, um, you know, I am so impressed by my clients who want to do the right thing. I am, I am just very proud to be a part of that. It's funny. I can't point to a specific event and say, "Hey, I did this or I did that." I'm not, a, I'm not in court, so I don't get to do big cases. But day in, day out, I, I have, I have always preached the grandmother test. 
uh, I have always communicated, I think, in a very simple way to folks. And I, and I always end my, my big trainings, I always say the same thing. You know, if you remember, if you forget everything that I've just said, that's okay as long as you remember one thing, the grandmother test. Okay, at the end of the day, weigh your conduct next to sitting next to your grandmother at a Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, having her pick up the newspaper, seeing something that you've done on the front page of the newspaper, would you be embarrassed? If the answer is yes, don't do it. And that's it. That's the message. And I think that has resonated with a lot of people I, I, I've talked to about that. I'm going to steal that, the Gary DeWall grandmother test. I'm going to use that some point. There you go. There you go. I won't even charge you uh, copyright infringement. It's okay. <laughs> As you know, I mean, and you've talked about some of your successors um, that are coming after you, but what, what would you say to a young person entering our field today? Um, what advice would you give them based on your experience? As I look back at my own career, I think that one of the things that has helped me a lot is I've never been afraid to not seem to be the smartest person in the room. Um, if, I, if, if somebody talks to me about a problem, I want to understand everything. I want to understand the whole environment around that problem because that allows me to give the best advice. And I think that's, I think that's the challenge for young persons. They're sometimes embarrassed among you know, the older people to show that maybe they don't know everything. No, don't be embarrassed, okay? Don't be embarrassed. Make sure you understand the facts. And, and if you do that, that will help you give advice. Also, don't be precipitous in your advice because sometimes it's the weirdest parts of your, of your psyche, the, the weirdest parts of your history that allow you to bring a holistic approach to the analysis. And, and do it, okay? Be creative, think out of the box. Don't, don't just think in black and white. Um, so know the facts, don't, don't be ashamed about you know, appearing dumb. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and then be holistic. Listen to not just what's being said, but also what's not being said. And then try to give your advice accordingly. Well, Gary, I wanna end the interview by asking you a question. You're, you have been known over the years to wear a fishing vest everywhere you go. Um, so I don't know if you have it handy and might be able to put it on. Well, yes, I have it handy. Of course I have it handy. I mean, it wouldn't be me without having the fishing vest right here. Uh, <laughs> we'll leave it off for the time being, but I'll let you know it's here. And uh, I, I will I will wear it at the uh, induction ceremony. How's that? Well, tell us how did the fishing vest start and why the hell do you wear a fishing vest? <laughs> Actually, it goes back to my prior um, statement. So I joined what was then Makata Futures. Um, I, I was initially hired effectively as the chief compliance officer. Um, and I, you know, I was I was a Wall Street lawyer. I was wearing three-piece vest, very nice three-piece vest. And I could tell I was connecting with nobody. I could tell I was just not making connections with the people who were my audience. And, and I don't know, I guess it was one Friday or whatever, I did come in wearing a fishing vest. And I noticed, and by the way, I wear a fishing vest, I'm a photographer and I love, you know, I love to take pictures and I used to, and the fishing vests have really good pockets. I could put lenses in them. So it's very convenient. I actually don't fish. Um, but anyway, I noticed that I was making a connection with the brokers. And I realized that communication and getting through was far more important than looking the part. And so by my down dressing, I made better connections and could communicate better. 
and even later on with regulators i found out you know that that having that you know yes it was important to look the part but it was also important to look in a different way because the message got through better and to me it's all about message um you know marshall mcluhan wrote a book in the 70s of mediumism is, is the message and and that's really that's what the best is all about it's all about communication Gary, in an industry filled with characters, you're the one of the most colorful ones that we have. And I just want to say thank you for our entire industry. I mean, on behalf of everyone, I just want to congratulate you on being a new inductee to the FIA Hall of Fame. And we can't see, wait to see you in person in the fishing vest down in Boca. Well, thank you, Walt. Uh, again, I, it's been a great honor to, to know you from your history at the commission to now you're just uh, you know, wonderful to the industry. And again, I love this industry and I really appreciate this honor. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal, or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual, or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties, or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast content. Reliance on the podcast contents is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale, or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2022 FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.